Imagine if each morning when you wake up, you're smiling and looking forward to your day, knowing you are happy even while you're dealing with grief and loss. The Grief and Happiness Podcasts inspires, comforts, and supports you with each new episode. I'm Emily Zerothret, welcoming you to explore with me your life of endless possibilities. Aloha. I'm so glad you joined us today for this conversation that I'm going to have with Brooke Brown, who is an author of a book called Emilia, a mother-daughter journey from here to beyond. It's, it's a beautiful book. And I'm, I have lots of questions to ask her about it. She lives here on Maui with me. So that's a kind of special to, to get to talk to a neighbor, essentially. So welcome, Brooke. I'm so glad that you're here with us today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about you before we start talking about the book? About me? About you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I grew up on Oahu, uh, moved to Maui in the early 70s. Our children were three and four at that point in time and uh, raised the kids here on Maui. And then uh, later, I guess I was about... You know, I was midlife and went through a divorce and about and then I started working um, as a writer and I was doing a lot of freelance journalism, freelance writing. And I'd always wanted to be a psychologist. So when Emilia, who was my younger child, went to college on the mainland for her freshman year, I had applied and gotten into graduate school. So I took her and settled her at school and then stopped in California on my way home and embarked in graduate school. So I got my doctorate in California and psychology. And and by the time I'd gotten my degree, I'd already been building a private practice, which is what I knew I'd wanted to do. And so I ended up getting my license there and staying there and working there. And um, always knew I'd come back to Maui at some point in the future. And then, and this is kind of, this is kind of cool. It was in 2009 I was in the shower. People used to ask me, they'd say, you're from Maui. What are you doing living in Marin? What are you doing here? But, you know, Marin's a beautiful place. Mm -hmm. It's gorgeous. I went hiking all the time. You can get to the ocean. It's just beautiful. And as a psychologist, I was like a kid in a candy shop. There were so many incredible people in the field all around that there was so much learning to be had. It was just wonderful and a very exciting place to be. And so I'd say, well, I don't know when the time I'll, I'll know, but I'm, I'm here now, but I'll, I knew I'd come back to Maui at some point in time. And then in, in October, 2009, I was in the shower one night and I heard a voice and it said, it's time to go home. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it was one of those voices. I have goose flashes. I'm sitting here now telling you that I just knew to listen to it. And so I, I told my children that I was going to be moving home. And I didn't, I, in January, I told my clients um, that come the end of May, I was going to not be there anymore. So I had a nice gradual transition time to close my practice, to refer them to other people and then came home. That was 2000, that was 2000 and it was 2010 in June when I was at 10. Yeah. When I came home. You know, I just, I think it's so wonderful when we hear something like that and we pay attention 
and and do it. That's kind of how I got to Maui too. My my husband had lived here long before I met him, and so we came here on our honeymoon and came here a few times. And when he realized that his um, his health was significantly declining, he said, "You know." I'd really like to live on Maui. So I said, okay. <laughs> and we moved. It, it was uh, it was an amazing time. He was in ICU two weeks before we came, got here. And I wasn't sure he was going to make it here. But we had two wonderful years here. And I'm so glad I came. So I, I'm so glad we paid attention to that. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I read your book. It just came out last week, right? It's... Yep. And I I just, I love the book. And if I can keep my voice, I want to just read this, this little bit from the book that says the energetic, energetic effect of positivity is well known. And she, referring to Emilia, instinctively knew the wisdom of tending to her social envi- environment. Wearing a smile affects us physiologically as well as the people around us. It's impossible to feel angry if you're smiling. You can say you're angry, but you cannot truly feel that emotion. Smiling actually releases endorphins, the feel-good neurotransmitter. That really struck me because with with your story, uh, the the first half of the book is about you and, and your daughter and your experience there. And to come through all of that and see the positivity of Emilia. She she was an amazing woman. And to see the lives she touched and the lives that you're continuing to touch because of that. And so that that passage, I just I usually don't read from the books that out loud uh, of people that I'm interviewing, but I, I thought that was a, a great great way to introduce the the feeling of what's going on. So without going into great detail, can you just tell us a little bit about what happened with Emily in her last couple of years? Yeah, she, um, she'd been a PE teacher at Seabury, which she loved. And then she paddled, was a very active paddler at Hawaii, you know, Hawaiian Canoe Club. And then she uh, stopped working just when, when, she, she decided it was time for a family. And then she, you know, became pregnant with Kahala. I moved back while she was pregnant and um, she was tired a lot of the time, you know, very tired, which is not uncommon with pregnancy. And then sort of jumping ahead, the, the, the baby was born and Kahala was born and she still was really tired a lot. And again, it made sense because he was a baby who had better things to do than sleep. Very <laughs> <laughs> active little guy. And, and she was also nauseous a lot, but she, she would get nauseous even as a child when she was tired. So again, it didn't seem strange. And a doctor had, had told her because she had had some bleeding hemorrhoids um, when she was pregnant or had some rectal bleeding. And the doctor said, Oh, you know, internal bleeding hemorrhoids, common to pregnant ladies, and have a colonoscopy after the baby's born. Well, she was so tired, she didn't get in to have the colonoscopy till he was about, oh, I don't know, 15 months old or so. And they said, you're fine. 
you know, your, your internal hemorrhoids, but you're, you know, you're fine. And so life continued. And then I think it was in August that summer, she, I was down there because her husband was a fireman. He worked at, he was stationed in Paia. And um, so I was down there a lot on the evenings, you know, because they work shifts. So when he was not there, I was there a lot to help her with the baby and to help her. And she said, mom, you know, I think he just really need me. I think he kicked me. It's really sore and feel here. And she put my hand at the base of her sternum and I felt aroma tomato. I felt this huge lump and I just knew instantly that it was cancer. And I didn't say that to her. I said, Emilia, you have to get to a doctor tomorrow. You have to see somebody tomorrow. And she said, you don't think I pulled something? And I said, no, I don't think you pulled something, but I think you need to see a doctor tomorrow. And um, Dorian Romanchek, who was a PA at Kaiser, was one of her best friends. And uh, she was having lunch as it happened with Dorian the next day. And Dorian took note of this and fast-tracked her through Kaiser. And the following, that was a Wednesday, the following Monday, she came home and she came through the kitchen door and I had been taking care of the baby all day. And she walked in and she burst into tears and she said, mom, you know, I have 30 to 50 tumors in my liver. You know, it's cancer. And, you know, stage four out of the blue. So that's what happened. And so the first part of the book is what went down with that. Is that what you were wondering? Yeah, that that was uh, what I wanted you to share, where the where the book came from and and why. Well, it, the book the book came. I mean, because, because when that happened, with when that with that diagnosis, my brain shut down, my mental acuity was gone, and I was aware of that. You know, I I was aware that I wasn't retaining my memory was shot, and I write things out anyway. That's always been my way of processing. So I started keeping a log because we dove right into treatment and I wanted a record of who, what doctor, who she talked to, when, what date, because I couldn't hold it in my mind. And I wanted to, to be able to track it. I felt it was important. And so never dreaming it was going to end up as long as it did. You know, and so by the time everything was well and done, I had a chronology. It wasn't a diary, but it was a chronology of, you know, when she'd seen someone, what it was just a chronology, a log. And, you know, in separate places, I kind of sometimes I journal, I you know write down my feelings. I, I didn't presume to bring anybody else into the mix. But when I'd have a, a very strong dream or whatever, I, I'd, I'd use a pen on my computer to just write write some of that because that's my way of processing it you know yes I, and then the book grew out of that because I wanted I had my own window of Emilia we were very close always very very close and she had many best friends that she was they were very close to but she died a few days after Kahala's third birthday and I I knew that what my experience of her was going to die with me, you know, by the time he was older, chances were he wasn't going to be able to remember his mom. And I, I wanted him to know these things about his mom because she was so extraordinary. And the way she comported herself during this treatment, unbelievable, unbelievable. I mean, she inspired everybody she, along the way. 
I mean, staff, it was just amazing, you know, and I, and I just feel like that's why I've written the book. I, I wrote it so Kahalakea would have this, my, my experience. So he'd know her, his mother through my experience, but also it's my way of, of giving it back because the community was so generous. I mean, in terms of supporting us and it's like, if, if by documenting her story, I can inspire it's not me inspiring it, but she can be an inspiration to others or a comfort. I really want to do that, you know, because I believe that that's there. That's so beautiful. I, I knew when I was reading it that you you had to have been uh, having some good notes on the way because it, you've you've got it. It's beautifully written. Thank just you. just really beautifully written. I feel like I know her from having read that. And, and she was a beautiful person, mm-hmm. uh, just just amazing. And I've, I've seen, another thing that I've seen a lot of is that people, now that it's easier, I think, to, not that anything about it is easy, but easier to, to publish a book. I, so many people are dealing with uh, their loss by writing a book. And some amazing books are coming out of this. And I, I just, I think it's so wonderful when people do that. I know the process of my, writing my book helped me a lot. I, I really um, learned to, to smile and be positive you through know, the, the writing. You know that, that there were two books that I mentioned in the, in the preface or the, at the beginning, that one of which was by Frank DeFord. Frank DeFord used to be on NPR periodically. He was a sports writer out of um, New Haven, I believe, but out of Connecticut. And I read his book about his daughter. It's called Alex, The Life of a Child. And she was nine and died, I believe it was cystic fibrosis. And I read that book when I was about 30 years old and went through a box of Kleenex reading it. Small book, powerful book. Never forgot it. And then... Fast forward, when I was building my psych- my practice as a psychologist in Marin, I worked part-time at a bookstore that was right across the street called Book Passage. And Isabella Ende used to come in there a lot because she was a mm. friend of, of the, the book owner. And Isabel came out with a book called Paola. And, of course, I read Paola immediately. And Paola was the story of her daughter, who was 29 when she died. And... Paula had had gone, gone in for an operation and had never come out of the anesthesia. Mm. And Isabel had sat by her bedside for four months, you know, hoping that Paula would come, come to, and it didn't happen. But though that book, both two books got in me so deeply that during the time with Emily, I didn't certainly didn't reread the books. I couldn't read anything other than, what I would call beach trash, just as total escapism. But, and that was at night before I'd fall asleep. But those two books gave me such comfort. I think in some way it assured me that I could do it. You know, two other, you know, two other parents had made it. You know, you, you can survive, you know, whatever the ordeal is. So I hope my book can do that. You know, I mean, it's like I want to say, may, and I do say, may your, may you, may you outlive your children. You know, that's my wish for everybody. 
but you know, statistically it's not apt to happen. So maybe this book will help somebody else down the line in the same way those books helped me. That's so beautiful. It, it's kind of ironic to me that I, I did a lot of reading in my time alone, a lot when, when Jacques died, who was my husband who died before my husband Ron died. <laughs> and Isabel Allende is somebody that I adore her writing. And I, I haven't read that book, but I've, I've read during that time period, I was reading those and her, her books are, they're special. They're just really special books. She's an amazing writer. She's so, a beautiful writer. I'm going to have to read that one because I, I didn't know about that one. I had a couple questions that I wrote down. One of them you said that emotions go underground, they don't cease to exist, they go dormant. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I just thought that was such an interesting statement. People would come in to my therapy room as clients. And many of them came in because they just wanted more out of life. They, they wanted to grow. It was growth work, which was wonderful. I mean, and that's a great time to go into therapy because you're not preoccupied and burdened with a problem. <laughs> um, however, more people than not came in because of a problem they were having. And it was, you know, generally depression or anxiety that brought them in. And more times out of not, more times than not, rather, the catalyst, the, there may have been a trigger that was of recent time, but the cause went back, went back to sometimes childhood, oftentimes childhood. If it was a death, childhood, almost always. And it was because they'd not been able to process their feelings around the grief then. You know, it can be something as simple as, oh, come on, be a big boy. Boys don't cry. Or be a man, you know, or man up. Or you've got to be the, you've got to be the head of your household now that your dad's not here. You know, I mean, things that people who say them don't mean to shut the other, shut the, shut these children down, but that's effect. That's the effect it has, you know, and, and even, you know, as, as adults, it's just like our bodies experience things. I mean, everything's energy, you know, and so when something happens, we take it in psychically, we take it in through our bodies, everything, and our bodies are incredible repositories. And the number of people who get sick and have somatic problems that stem from, you know, a psychological problem, meaning an emotion that wasn't vented, wasn't given anger or grief or, you know, something like that, it takes a huge toll and it, it really curtails their quality of life, their ability to live fully is who they are. So it's kind of like, you know, whatever modality, but the more you can get out. And that's not, I'm not advocating using somebody else as a dumping bag, you know, a dumping place, but there are ways, you know, there, there are techniques you can use. And we were talking about breathing earlier, you know, even breath work, you know, breath work, we breathe, it's incredibly powerful. But writing, walking, running, physically expressing things, talking, Great. You know, talk to your clergy person, talk to a therapist, talk to if you have a good friend that's not going to get worn out, you know, but you don't have to hold it all in. It's the it's everything that's held in. And sometimes things get held in so long that 
every life sort of grows over them. That's the problem. So people start feeling everything's fine again, but it's in there. Yeah, it is. I, I know I had a, a really horrendous experience um, when I was in high school. And I thought that I was, I, I dealt with it by moving out of town. <laughs> I had, I graduated and could go away to college and I just didn't go back because I, I couldn't face it. And I realized that I was kind of holding, I hadn't talked to anybody about it. And I realized I was kind of holding on to it. And so it, at one point I was with somebody, uh, I was working for Kaiser and and they you could go and talk to somebody there. And I thought, I'm just going to go and talk to somebody. So I went in and told her that I was having, you know, these different challenges. And she said, well, where do you think it came from? And I, it just, it was like a light bulb thing for me. I said, well, I think it's related to this experience I had. And I told her what it was and she listened. And then she said, aren't you over that yet? And I don't think she could have said anything worse, you know, because all that did was cause me to stuff it down and bury it. And, and probably I, feel some shame around it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it was it was bad. And then fast forward, I got to the point where I was teaching writing at the university level. And we had a, a new computer lab when computers like home computers first came out and the students just loved to actually get to write on those computers because nobody had a computer at home. So I'd give them a topic and we'd write and then we'd talk about it afterwards. And this one evening, I remember it was a night class that I gave them something and I sat down and I thought, oh, I'm just going to write because it's quiet and I can just write. And that the story, the whole story came out. The whole thing just, I was so surprised. I didn't share it with my students, but I got it all out. I wrote it down and I felt like the weight of the world was lifted off my shoulders. And I, I know that's kind of trite, no, I, but it, it really felt like that. And that was kind of the convincer to me of the the therapeutic value of writing. And it's so incredibly I, cathartic to do. Oh, what yeah. You described. Mm -hmm. it, it really is. And I, so I've once... After Ron died, I thought, okay, what am I going to do now? And so I started writing about, okay, what am I going to do now? And that led me to all the things that I'm doing now, the, the book, the alliance, the podcast, everything that I'm doing came from that. But I, what I'm really loving is seeing when I'm helping people write to deal with their grief, how these things can come out for them. And then they smile afterwards. They get to the point of... People that had come in and not uh, not happy at all get to the point where they can live their life again. It's not that, that they, they aren't grieving. But. And, and the thing is, you know, I, I, I've told so many people, you can write. Some people like to do it longhand. You can burn your stuff when you're done. Mm -hmm. I personally get frustrated in longhand because I can't write as fast as my thoughts come out and I'm a fast typist. So I like to just sit at a computer, shut my eyes and go because who cares about typing errors, you know, mm -hmm. but just go. And it's incredibly cathartic. You know, it's, it's just a beautiful way. And then you can hit delete when you're done. So it's not as though anybody's going to be sticking their nose in your business. You know, it's just done, but it's incredibly yeah. valuable. It really is. I'm, I'm just a lot um, of people are 
never scared though. And, you know, mm-hmm. Emily would, I, I know, cause I, I used to do, I was a, one of my specialties was EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Mm-hmm. So a lot, a lot of people would come to me for help with traumas that had happened to them way, way back to release that kind of stuff. And one of the big things for many people is they're really afraid to go back to something old because it was big because they're afraid that if they start crying, they'll never be able to stop. Mm-hmm. I know it, it sounds bizarre to say it out of context because it's, it's not a rational thought, but it's real. It's very real. That is their experience. And when they finally are able to dare and they may just absolutely burst into tears and few minutes later it's like they they come out of it you know I mean I never I never had anybody in my office you know the the 50 minute therapy hour I never had anybody in there cry the whole 50 minutes it just didn't happen so people don't need to be afraid of it yeah that's that's really true I'm I have found with what we do um, with the grief and happiness alliance is the group that I have meet every week on zoom and we always do a, a writing practice and a happiness practice. And with the writing practice, I haven't asked them to go deep on anything. But I, And it's different every week. We write about something different every week. And I find that they get comfortable with their writing and they end up writing at home. And they've told me that they've had this cathartic experience because they finally got comfortable with saying, oh, I can write this down. You know, <clears throat> nobody doesn't has to read it. Nobody has to share it, but I can write it down and they have that same uh, wonderful cathartic feeling. Wonderful. That's I'm just that's music to my ears to hear that you've got people doing that, Emily. It's really such a gift. Uh, I just I thought that that was what came from all all that writing after Ron died was uh, since I am a writer taught, taught writing for many many years and written college textbooks that I I felt like it was a gift that I could use in a different way now mm-hmm. and I I really liked it a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at my little list because I thought I've got so much that I could talk to you about. We could sit here and talk all day long about things that came up in the book that were were something wonderful. This is a, a short quote from the book. While Emilia was alive, love, generosity, and gratitude were the most powerful agents for illuminating the darkness that the ugly cloud of cancer created. And I think that's so beautiful because I've, I've seen, I've had a lot of different jobs in my life. I was a, a licensed vocational nurse to put myself through college. And I had planned on going on further with that, but that's another long story. Didn't happen. Became a writer instead. <laughs> but when I was doing that, I, I had so many people that would be so um, negative once they found out that something was happening to them or happening to a loved one that they just couldn't deal with it. And they, they'd not be very nice to be around. And Ron was like, like you described Emilia there with the, the generosity and the gratitude and the, the love that was expressed all the time. It was, a, it was a joy. You know, we all knew that he was in the process of transitioning for a few years and it was okay. He was, he was okay with it. And we just spent our time focusing on what's good and 
and beautiful and lovely. And I thought of that when I read that, that sentence from the book. Well, we do have, we can't control what life throws at us. Mm-hmm. We can control our response to it. You know, and Emilia chose, she was an optimistic child. I mean, she, she was always the glass is half full. You know, I mean, that's, that was her innate way of moving. And so gratitude for her came quite naturally, but you've seen it, you know, going through chemo and some of these ugly things, it's not, one can very easily slide very quickly into a victim posture or Mm -hmm. be angry or all these, you know, things. And, And there's, and I'm not saying just stuff anger, you know, when you have an angry moment, be angry about it. But in terms of just how you want to be, she and I both just chose. I mean, we would sit in the chemo cubicle in San Francisco in Kahului. We'd sit there and we'd think about things we were grateful for. You know, we'd think about how grateful, you know, how incredibly wonderful the, the chemo nurses were and how fortunate it, she was to be able to, you know, have treatment, have, have the chemo, have a doctor that was responsive. I mean, you can find things everything. It doesn't even have to be something big. You know, it's like, oh, you were able to walk into the chemo cubicle on your own. Okay. I can be grateful. I can still walk without an assist, you know, without a cane or without a walker. There are lots of things and it makes such huge difference. It makes it, it's again, it's energy. It's what you're giving off and whatever you're giving off affects the environment. Same way, you know, no fun to be around somebody who's a sourpuss or a victim. You're getting it. You know, and it's, ugh, who wants it? You know? Yeah, it, it just, it makes all the difference in the world when you can allow yourself to do this. I think sometimes people feel guilty for if they they are happy or smile or do something <laughs> uh, when when things are going on. I, I know that Ron's last week, we spent home at home, but he called he he called people that he wanted to come see him to start off with. So we had people from the mainland come over. They were sleeping on the air mattresses and everything else. We had so many people around us. And then anybody that didn't come over, he FaceTimed with on his phone. Because wow. he wanted wow. he wanted to say goodbye to everybody and he wanted to talk to him. And I think people were surprised when they got the phone call. But he was loving every minute of it. It was so cool for him to make sure that he he made contact with everybody he wanted to make contact with. And then the people who were here, it were like his daughter was here and she put on dance music and everybody would dance. And we were vegan at the time because that was supposed to be the the best thing for him with what he was dealing with. And and he he had found a certified vegan chef program for me to go through so that I could give them his <laughs> vegan chef or vegan food. But that week he, he, I said, is there anything you want to eat? And he said, yes, I want ribs and cornbread and collard greens. And <laughs> I said, okay. So we called somebody that, that was a friend of his that lived on the island that we knew was a good barbecuer. And he came over and made fabulous ribs and he got to eat his ribs and was, was just thrilled with that. No guilt that he was vegan and eating ribs, you know, because that was, that was what he desired at that moment. People were laughing. They were singing. They were 
just having a great time. And as long as he could, he would get outside on our lanai, the covered patio that we have, uh, so that he could sit with the people around him and sit out in nature and be hearing the birds and the breeze. And it was amazing. And and you don't think of when things are, are nearing an end that it will be like that. But I, I smiled a lot that week. It was it was really nice to be able to do that. And he felt good being able to do that. He was perfectly comfortable with being able to uh, surrender because he, he had been having some really bad challenges with some care that he had that was didn't work. It, it was a, that's a really long story, but it was it was very, very painful for him to go through for quite a while. And that whole time, he would still, he'd be nice to the doctors. He'd talk to them about, you know, personal stuff, you know. And it made all the difference in the world to have all that positivity. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I could not agree with you more. It's just, it's amazing. I mean, it just, it's an attitude many of us would do well to work on having more of the time. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, as, as you read, I mean, I, I will never, ever forget after that aborted surgery with, you know, that she was so counting on, you know, the first thing she said to the doctor when he said, you know, I had to close you up. First thing out of her mouth, you know, as tears ran down her face was, thank you for trying. That's not what, that's not what he heard out of my mouth when he came and told me that in the, in the waiting, in the waiting area. Not at all, you know, but I just went, oh my God, unbelievable. Yeah. Thank you for trying. Boy, if we can all hold that, that sort of feeling in our hearts of that uh, gratitude and love and smiling mm-hmm. is the most powerful thing that you can do. It's, yeah, we it's can really all great. smile. We can all smile. I had an aunt who I dearly loved. I had lots of relatives, but she was she was special to me. And she her husband had a lot of challenges and people judged him because of the challenges, but they wanted to go visit another aunt of mine that lived in the town about a half an hour away. And their grandson, 16-year-old grandson, wanted to go with him. And he had just gotten his driver's license. And they said, well, why don't you drive? And he said, fine. You know, he was thrilled to death. And they had a terrible accident and her husband was killed. And she was kind of split open. It was really amazing the the injuries that she had she managed to i don't know how she did it but get out of the hospital to go to the funeral because she wasn't about to not go to her husband's funeral but when i would go to to visit her at her house she had her uh, like a hospital bed set up in her living room so that she could see her tv and it was back in the days of the vhs recordings she had this recording of patch adams yeah, yeah. And she said she she watched that movie every day because she knew it was going to make her laugh and smile, and she Fabulous. that's what she wanted to do. And she said yeah. that's what heals me is this laughter is healing me from the yeah. incredibly traumatic experience. She Absolutely. depended on that laughter. So, 
So we we have, I think, a lot in common with the way that we're dealing with grief. I spent a lot of time in bed and, and reading, too. It, it, I couldn't even read to start off with. I, I found Hallmark movies, <laughs> which I hadn't really watched were before. Perfect. But Those were perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah, you didn't mean, have. You don't have to worry about falling asleep in them because they've all got essentially the same plot, so you know what's going to happen in the and end. They're, and they're and they're feel goods, and it's a total escape, mm-hmm. and it and it keeps totally. your mind from from going to dark neighborhoods. Yeah, and I pr- frankly, I think that's good self care because yeah. I th- I think you need it. I think your system needs a time out. Yeah. I I think so too. I got to the point where I could read after I did that, but it was a while that I was watching those Hallmark movies, oh. and I, I was so grateful for them. I, I don't watch them now at all. <laughs> don't have any interest I in still them. Do. I don't have. I don't. I haven't seen any Hallmark movies recently, but I still. I love. I turn on Netflix and stuff. I love. Oh movies. yeah, there's there's some great stuff on Netflix. Can be really oh, comforting to me. Yeah, what whatever it is that you're going to watch. I really like Call a Midwife. That just is. Yeah, I've had fun with that. Oh, I love that because uh, I, when I was nursing, I was an OB nurse, so uh, I had Perfect. lots of experiences there, and I used to teach childbirth education classes so I just I, I can really relate to it and it's it's nice to find something that you've got something that that you can root for or relate to because they you know, they had bad things happen and call the midwife and you'd say oh you know <laughs> they're they're going to come through we got to figure this out for them and just get involved in their lives and I think that that's a good thing and I used to think that you know spending a lot of time with TV was essentially a waste of time. But I learned uh, when Jacques was so ill that, that all I could do was sit there and watch TV. And that so we, we watched TV for a long time. And, and we had this agreement that we were gonna, weren't going to watch things that made us angry or that were gross. You know, we wanted to find things we find things that would make us smile. And I'm I'm not crazy about sitcoms, but we watched those and America's funniest home videos, whatever, because we didn't have Netflix at that time was getting a, a, a disc yes. and you have to yes, mail it right. in and get it back. So um we didn't have all the options of things to watch then, but it it is was good to be doing that instead of sitting there and saying, oh, look at the terrible shape that we're in and what's happening and isn't it sad? And we didn't do that. I agree. I mean, and the thing that's nice about being able to watch a movie is that you're, you can be totally passive. Mm-hmm. Even reading the Hallmark movie is a book requires a certain amount of energy to read, to focus on the page. And I mean, I, there were times where I just, I was flat. I didn't have that much energy. It was like, as you say, turn something on in front of me that would have, I could get into. And if I fell asleep, fantastic. Mm-hmm. No biggie. Yeah. I think, uh, I think the more going back to the quote that I said at the beginning about positivity, the, the more that we can find that keeps us in that space of positivity. Mm-hmm. I, I interviewed one person on my podcast who had a son who died uh, right after college. And he said that his, his son was such an inspiration to him because whenever somebody would be around him and, and start being down or something, he'd look at him and say, what's good about your day today? And I thought, that's so cool. Here's the guy that everybody's feeling sorry for and wanting to cry over and stuff. And he's he's 
finding out what's good about them that day. That's yeah. I mean, and if we can do that for ourselves, it's like adopting a gratitude practice. I Mm -hmm. think it's the greatest thing anybody can do. I mean, they can be grateful whatever for whatever they want to be grateful for, but just that attitude of being grateful, I think is just, I think it's life enhancing. It, it truly is. I, I started that when I first was introduced to the concept it was after Jacques died. And I said, oh, what do I have to be grateful for? My husband died, you know, and oh, it took, it, it, yeah, it, it took, took me a while to start writing it. But boy, once I started writing it, I went on, I got addicted to writing gratitude lists because I just yeah. write them all the time and it helped me so much. And I have not stopped since once I started writing, I write things I'm grateful for every single day. And I, I want to write them down, not just think them or talk about them, but actually write them down. You can mine it, you know. To, you know, it, it, it's, it's it's something just flew through my mind. It's a little off subject, but it's it's an interesting thing. There is an exercise that psychologists will use a lot of times working when they're, when they're working with companies, you know, like organizational types. And I used I've used it with a couple of with a few men in my practice, including a couple of of Navy SEALs former Navy SEALs, you know, so these are just prototypical men, right? Yeah. They're not going to cry or, you know, they're strong and, you know, the the whole thing. What's what, what you do is it shows you the power of a smile. You draw, let's say if you have, you know, legal size tablet, or it doesn't, it doesn't have to be even that large. You draw a circle and you draw the eyes like that and a frown. And I, I would, I would have two pictures. I'd have that. And I'd ask them to hold out their strongest arm. They'd put their arm out and I would, I'd say, okay, resist, resist. And I would push their, try to push their hand down. Couldn't budget, could not budget. Then I'd show them the other picture. I mean, excuse me. I'd show them with that, their arm would go right down as they're looking at this negative face. They couldn't hold their hand up. I'd show them the picture of the face with the eyes like this and the smile. No way I couldn't budge their hand. Just shows you the power, you know, and they'll use it in an office place as saying, hey, be a good employer. You know, keep your employees happy because your productivity will go up. You won't have the absenteeism and all. People are happier. It's a happy environment. It's it's a good place to work. You know, it makes it so makes sense. But if we practice gratitude, we're putting a smile on our face. That's right. And I, it's just incredibly important. And if you're not doing it now, start. <laughs> yeah. Really, it'll make a difference in, in your life. It's portable. It's free. You can do it anywhere. <laughs> it's great. You know, what I thought of when you said that was the, the other day, I was trying to figure out something that I I wanted to do, and it just wasn't coming to me. And I thought, well, I'm just going to start writing some things down and kind of do a uh, brainstorming session on a piece of paper and when I went to start I ended up drawing a picture of my face to start off with with a smile on it and it it was I thought well I don't know where that came from but boy that smile on that face that stuff just started coming out and the problems were getting solved and it was really cool and I thought instead of just putting a circle in the middle of my page (laughs) draw a little happy face and uh, I, I it's a really cool thing that's very cool. 
This has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. As I've said, I could talk to you all day long, but <laughs> it's um, probably time that we draw this to a close. Do you have anything else that you'd like to say for sure before we stop talking? No, I just want to thank you so much for, for doing this and helping the book along its way so it finds its way to people it can help. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm glad that I can do it. And we have a mutual friend that's a neighbor of mine, and she came over maybe a week ago, I guess, with a, a card that showed the picture of the, the cover of the book. And I said, oh, I got to get her on my podcast. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm so she, glad to she knew Emily, yeah. yeah. She knew Emily, yeah. Mm-hmm. She, yeah, she, she mentioned, we went to a um, thing at the, the Mac where they had sales from local people that did stuff. And some of Emily's jewelry was there, her oh. beads or something. One of her friends had it For there. Pam, Pam Peterson's coffee. Yeah. yeah. yeah Kaha jewelry. Emily used to paint paint on the porcelain earrings and jewelry for Pam. She worked for Pam. Yeah. yeah and, and Don just had to tell me, you, you know who did those? You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know it was cool because I, of course I, I was, didn't move here, I think, before she uh, transitioned. So I didn't get to know her, but I almost feel like I do, especially now that I've read the book. <laughs> you do now that you've read the book. <laughs> yes. And, you know, the, the picture that was uh, on the cover, oh, we didn't talk about Nakiki Amelia. Can you mention that first before sure, we go? I, That's important. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I mean, after Amelia died, I was pretty much flat on my back. You know, I just I just didn't care if I lived. I wasn't suicidal, but I, you know, just all joy had disappeared. It was all I could do, you know, and I worked on gratitude, but I still had very little energy. And several months, but when, the, when energy started coming back, I realized I needed to start a nonprofit so that children who had had a parent die would have support. Because at the time, the uh, Lilio Kalani Children's Center was the only place on Maui that, that had anything they could offer grieving children or teens. And you had to be part Hawaiian to, to participate in it. And that would have that would have worked for us had we known about it at the time, but nobody had. And at that point, I decided, no, we need something that any child, you know, any child can get in. So I modeled it shorthand. I modeled it on the Dougie Center, which is the gold standard in the children's bereavement field. It's a wonderful center in Portland, Oregon. And um, founded that in, we got the our 501c3 in 2015 and then I was executive director of that for five years and then per design retired and the woman who's running it now is Carol Zoom and she's fantastic um COVID really put a wrench in the works obviously because we were in a lot of the schools and so forth and so Carol's having to get some momentum going again but it's a wonderful group it's it's non-denominational it's free and the children we have different groups like the younger children and then the teens and the children go in their own room. It's peer support. It's not therapy so that the kids support each other. We, we facilitate conversations and we have games and things that they meet each other because that's where the healing is when they recognize they're not alone in what they're experiencing. And then the, the adults that have brought them, it might be an auntie, auntie or grandmother because sometimes it's the parents who died or somebody's home with a you know younger child or whatever, but 
we have the adults meet in another room so that they're getting support. And it's again, it's peer support. And we we have we train our facilitators. And so there are you know, two facilitators in each group that, that run it. And so it's a very safe place. And what's said in there stays in there. You know, so it's it's confidential. And it's been wonderful, you know, and it's it's continuing to grow. And, um, you know, as, as I was saying to you earlier, I mean, one of my, you know, things that I'm doing is I want I want to share proceeds of the book, you know, with Nakeki Wamalia and the Hawaiian Canoe Club and Sikari Hall and, you know, all these Maui places that, you know, meant so much to Emilia. So thank you for asking about that. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm and also, as a plug, if anybody's interested in volunteering for Nakeki Wamalia in terms of becoming a facilitator, just call 214-9832. You know, it's, it's Nakeki's number. Nakeki has its website, Nakeki Oemalia. They can Google it or whatever. It'll come up, nkoemaui.org. Because, you know, Carol will take people's names because we're always, you know, expanding our facilitators. I think that's so wonderful. I, I know I've talked to a couple of people who have been facilitators for you that they, they love it. They just think it's so good. And kids uh, just traditionally in our society get left out of the whole grief issue. And we just don't acknowledge the fact that they are grieving too. You know, you know, that the people used to say that to me and, and, I, I don't know if I don't remember if I put it in the book or not, but people, it would drive me crazy because people, I worried about Kahalakea, Emilia's son. And because I had worked with so many adults who'd had a parent die when they were young. And I worried about him. And that was one reason I started Nakekio Emilia. But people would say to me, oh, don't worry, kids are resilient. And every time somebody said that to me, I would bristle. I mean, there was something, I mean, I know kids are resilient, but that didn't sit right. And one day I was, I was talking to Donna Sherman, who was then the executive director of the Dougie Center. And she's a, she's a licensed, you know, she's a social worker. And I said, Donna, what is this? You know, I, it really bothers me every time somebody says that to me. And she looked at me, she said, yeah, kids are resilient, but not in a vacuum. That's exactly right. So with Nakeki Wamalia, they don't have to be in the vacuum. And we also get the parents talking to the kids because a lot of times the parents are afraid to talk to the kids about the person who died because they're, the kids look fine and they're afraid they're going to upset the kids. Mm -hmm. exactly. And the kids see their parents who look fine, so they don't want to talk about dad or mom because they don't want to upset their parents. Or... Let's say there's been an acrimonious divorce or separation. I mean, one child said to me, once, I can't talk to my mom about my dad. You know, he used to beat her. You know, mm. she, she, hate, she hated him. So that, you know, that this kid could come to the group and talk about it was fantastic. You know, because he was right. He couldn't talk. He didn't feel he could talk to mom. And he was, I'm sure he was right. She could not have held it the way he needed her to. So thank you for asking about Makekio Emilia. Uh, I'm so impressed with the organization. Uh, part of the proceeds from my book sales go to that. And I feel strongly about it. It's That's another thing with, with gratitude. One of the things I'm grateful for is that I can 
share and, and support things. And it doesn't have to be a whole lot. If there's something that you want to share and support, like if, if a hundred people gave Nakiki O'Malley $5 a month, that would be a chunk of change that they didn't have otherwise, you know? So if every little bit helps, don't, don't and, think that you have to be a let me Let me throw out while you're, while you're making, making a plug right now, Nakiki has got an incredible matching grant. Mm. For for new donations, I mean, and it's it's like a hundred thousand dollars is going to match. Wow! So it's a wonderful time for people to make a donation to Nakeki before the end of the year. Oh, yeah. that's fabulous! That's just fabulous. It's just such a gift. But you know, we were talking about things like this. You know, books or whatever. It's kind of like you know, when the intention is good and and it's helpful. They, you know, these, these, whether it be books or nonprofits, they, they seem to take on a life of their own, you know, which is really a beautiful thing. Yes, they, so. they really do. Thank well, you. Thank, oh, you're welcome. And thank you so much for being here with me today. I think this is a, such a wonderful conversation to have and that people are going to be touched by it in different ways because we talked about a lot of different things here <laughs> so there's something for everybody <laughs> so thank you for listening today and i'll be back next week with another guest that that you'll enjoy too and i i really appreciate you watching the show downloading liking all that sort of stuff really helps us to reach even more people so thank you very much Do you want more comfort, support, and happiness? Join the Grief and Happiness Alliance. Visit my website at lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com and read my book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, rate it, review it, and binge on all our episodes on grief and happiness. I can't wait to welcome you back to another episode.